we are wiring our collective mind together in a way that it's never been done before. The internet just seems to be this genie that's gotten out of the bottle. The essence of the technology itself is so favorable towards individual freedom that it's tilting the landscape that direction. This whole paradigm you're devitalizing when you sell fiat currency and buy Bitcoin. So this combination of hyperfluid ideas and the option to actually exit in a meaningful way that contributes to the collapse of the existing status paradigm, I think is really powerful. The destination is a world in which government is a local affair. Welcome to the Staying Free podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Robert Breedlove. Robert is a writer, philosopher, and freedom maximalist who's found his life's work in the Bitcoin space as a contributor to the separation of money and state. Through his writing and media work, Robert aims to elucidate the importance of freedom and self-sovereignty across all spheres of human action. So I've been reading and listening to Robert's work for a number of years. And when I first started this podcast, I probably would have put Robert in the top three people who I wanted to bring on the podcast. So this was a really big one for me. And although I could have easily spent the whole episode talking about Bitcoin, I wanted to also talk to Rob about the philosophy of government and the nature of the state as an entity. If you haven't checked out Robert's work already, I really recommend that you check out his podcast, The What Is Money Show, and also his writings on Substack, or you can listen to them on Bitcoin Audible as well. I genuinely think that Robert's work represents a revival in the conversation around libertarianism and Austrian economics. So I'm really grateful to have had this opportunity and I hope that you guys enjoy the conversation as well. If you do enjoy the episode, make sure you give it a like and a share on social media. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please do give it a five-star rating in whichever podcast app you're using. If you're new here, welcome. Make sure you give the podcast a subscribe for future episodes. Just another reminder as well, there is a Telegram group for the podcast. That's t.me slash pod. And if you got some value from this episode, please do consider donating to the podcast. That can be done in a few ways. The first is via Bitcoin tips, which you can do both on-chain and via the Lightning Network. The second is via Buy Me A Coffee, where you can give a one-off donation or join one of the three membership tiers starting at just £1 a month. Links to those are in the description. And the final way is by listening to the podcast on Fountain, where you can stream stats as you listen to the podcast. All your support is hugely appreciated and will go directly towards the costs of running the show. All right, on to the episode. Robert Breedlove, welcome to the podcast. I'm like super excited to talk to you. I've been doing, uh, going back through some of your your works, which I'd already read. And then just this week, I've been kind of going back and listening to uh, some of your stuff on Audible, on Bitcoin Audible. Um, just, you know, reminding myself about kind of some of your work, because it's definitely been a huge influence on me and in the way that I think about kind of both money and Bitcoin. So, you know, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you. So, yeah, um, Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here and happy to hear the written work has been valuable for you. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, for those uh, who haven't heard of you before, I'm I'm sure that a lot of people will have heard of you. But for those who haven't, um, you know, I would say that at least for me, those kind of like key works were Money, Bitcoin and Time, which I I think that was maybe one of your first writings. And then Masters of Slaves and Money, which was uh, also really, really awesome. And obviously, you've got your podcast, the the What Is Money show as well. Um, so, yeah, I was actually listening to to Guy Swan talk about, um, you know, he always says on his on his podcast, Bitcoin Audible, like, you know, that he's the guy who's kind of written. Uh, he's the guy, sorry, who's who's read the most about um, about Bitcoin. And mm-hmm. I would say that, you know, you're up there with people who has 
written the most and spoken the most about money and the nature of money. And, you know, if, if, if not now, I'm sure by the end of your career, you will have been one of the people <laughs> who has really advanced that conversation the most. So uh, I'm super excited to get into some ideas about um, about money with you. But just first of all, I'd really like to just get a little bit of your backstory because I don't know... Um, I don't know too much about your backstory. I only really know about you kind of since you came to Bitcoin. So a little bit, um, you know, about your backstory before being a proponent of Bitcoin and hard money. Mm, Sure. So I grew up in Tennessee and um, I've always been a very curious person. And I think it was when I was 10 or 11 years old, we got assigned a summer reading book where we were sent home you know, your school's out for the summer for three months, but they assigned us a book to read over the summer. And you come back at the beginning of the school year and you do an assignment on it. You know, you write a report. And the first book I was assigned was a book called Hatchet, which is about a young boy. Um, he's in a plane crash. It's like him and one pilot, the plane crashes, the pilot passes away, and the boy is basically abandoned. And I think he's in like the Canadian forest. And he has to survive. So that was a book that was very, this is a very good book. I don't know. This resonated with me as a kid. It was very interesting. And so it kind of incited in me this, this love for reading. And it's also something that my mom had always really pushed was that education was like the solution to every problem. So I was a very curious person. I picked up the habit of reading pretty young and, um, basically started using it to satisfy my curiosities about the world. Like whatever questions I had, I would, I would go and grab, you know, the hardest books I could find about it and read. Um, one of my initial fascinations was just the cosmos. So we spent a lot of time outdoors in Tennessee as a kid. So I'd always often catch myself looking up at the stars, wondering what in the heck is going on with all that. And, um, Shortly after I started reading pretty seriously to myself, I started reading, I went straight to the deep end of the pool and started reading astrophysics. So I was reading like Stephen Hawking and Brian Greene and um, these other authors, books I could barely understand, you know, like 11, 12 years old. But um, just, I don't know, I, don't, I guess I'm weird that way. I always thought it was like fun or it's like kind of a challenge. And I basically maintained that habit throughout most of my life. I still do it today. I try to read about a book a week. I prefer nonfiction. That's that's really difficult. Um, I like the feeling of of reading a book that's stretching my my brain to new dimensions. I like reading things that I don't agree with too. Like I find that to be a good catalyst for for critical thinking. And um, I say all this because the, one of the intellectual rabbit holes I went down. Um, I guess I'm probably like around the age of 16. I was very mystified by the stock market and economics. Like I couldn't understand what in the world that meant. People were trading shares of companies. Like I, there was no tangible, I couldn't get my head around it. I had no idea what it was, what it meant. So I started reading the economist magazine pretty seriously. Um, and also some other like economics newsletters and things like this. And uh, I learned a lot from that. In retrospect, The Economist magazine's a, a Keynesian-focused newspaper. It doesn't really have anything about Austrian economics. So there was a big gap in my understanding due to that, that lack. 
Um, but eventually, I think it was in one of the economists, the economics newsletters that I was reading, the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island was recommended. And for those that don't know about that book, it's, uh, it's on the inception of the Federal Reserve, which is the central bank of the United States of America. And it's also, uh, a treatise on central banking more generally it goes into a history of money, a history of, of central banking, um, does kind of an ontological deep dive into money itself, like the nature of money. What is it? How has it changed over time? What are the good properties and qualities of money? So that book really left a mark on me. Um, the takeaway that I sort of had was I felt like I had found the bottom of that economics rabbit hole. Um, maybe not the economics, but I found the, I found the source of a lot of, the corruption that I perceived in the world, like the world, especially as I was getting into my career, I'm like, this is not at all what I thought the world was. It's much more greasy and slimy and scammy and political. Then I, I guess I had some other, I had, I had a more pure notion of the world when I was in college, you know, that these big companies and institutions really had our best interest in mind and really knew what was going on. And, we were living in a sophisticated society and, you know, the, the pangs of things like slavery and all of this, those, those were all behind us. And we we're in a, like a modern civilization. Um, all of that was sort of decimated by reading the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. And when you realize that the most dominant institution in the world, which is the central bank that controls the monopoly on money, um, you, you know, as all monopolists do, it uses that monopoly position, which it preserves through violence, coercion, and deception to, to enrich itself at the expense of users. So, um, I've, you know, you could basically sum it up by saying that central banking is a pyramid scheme. Yet it is the, is the largest and most dominant institution in the world today. So it's, it's a bitter pill to swallow. Uh, especially if you, if you haven't started to think critically about the nature of the world. Uh, it's not that surprising actually when you look at world history in the broadest scope. Humans have always, there's always been a dark side to human history. We've always been brutalizing, enslaving, you know, strategizing against one another, scamming one another, all of these things. So it's not, it's not too surprising actually that, that the central bank is what it is. However, uh, it can be difficult to difficult and painful to accept that this is the reality in which we live. So I basically had taken that, you know, you could say I was black pilled on central banking in my early twenties. This was before Bitcoin existed actually. And then, so I, I went through that. I felt terrible about it. I didn't know what to do about it. I bought a, a group of both my friends and my family. I bought an abridged version of the creature from Jekyll Island titled dishonest money. And I gave it out as like a Christmas gift. And I, I don't know, I was trying to motivate people to see this problem in the world so that we could like do something about it and fix it. And a couple of people read it and they got back to me and they're like, okay, you know, I see this, this is a big problem. 
um, what do we do? What can we do about it? And that feeling of hopelessness always stuck with me. Like once someone actually posed the question to me, you know, I thought I was like, I don't know. I guess I thought I was contributing to the solution by handing out this book. And then as soon as someone reads the book and comes back to me, it's like, okay, what do we do about it? I had no answer at all. Like I had, I have no idea. I don't, I don't know what to do. It's like, it's just this big dark thing. And I, I guess there's not an answer. So I sort of, you know, wrestled with it for a few months and eventually just kind of gave up. I was just like, I, I don't know what else to do about this. And I moved on with my life. I became just like a dollar chasing dude, like everyone else in the world. And, um, I ended up getting my master's degree in accounting and finance. I worked, I went to work initially in public accounting and I eventually found my, my track as basically a career CFO. I was working as a, a finance chief for, for different early and mid stage companies. Um, before eventually discovering Bitcoin and, you know, I guess just to give you the short version, um, found crypto, started going down the crypto rabbit hole, thought crypto was a big deal. And then, but eventually as I kept studying the space, actually when I put money into the space, uh, that really started to it gives you a lot of skin in the game, makes you really study what you own a lot more. I always say where your money goes, your mind follows. And I think that alludes to this actually deep connection between our psychology and economics more generally, which is a relationship largely mediated through money. Um, I eventually, I became more and more narrowly focused on Bitcoin as a result and uh, realizing that essentially all other crypto assets are decentralized in name only, meaning that they're not actually decentralized, they're all controlled. It's easier to think of those, all other crypto assets, which Bitcoiners lovingly call shit coins. Um, they're basically companies, whereas Bitcoin is something different. It's more like an internet protocol, like HTTP or TCPIP. So, as I'm going down this intellectual journey, I'm becoming more and more focused on Bitcoin. And I was fortunate to have picked up the book, The Bitcoin Standard, in April 2018, which was, I think I got it the week it came out. Like, I was probably one of the first people to buy that book. And I read it as soon as I got it. In two days, I read the book, read it over a weekend. And that was like the final piece for me that really crystallized my thinking was like, it first of all, it introduced me to Austrian economics, which is something I've been sorely lacking historically. And second of all, it explained this connection, like how, how gold monetized. Uh, and really, it was the other piece, it was the complement to the creature from Jekyll Island that I needed. I needed to understand Austrian economics to come to see Bitcoin as disruptive to gold and therefore uh, the solution to central banking, because central banking is, a, is an institution built on top of gold, effectively. And that is it in a nutshell. I, you know, I continued to work around the space. I ran a hedge fund for a few years in crypto slash Bitcoin, trying to outperform Bitcoin. And then finally, uh, the revelation I had in 2020 is like, what am I doing? spending all my blood, sweat, and tears trying to outperform the best performing asset in human history, 
when I could just hold the best performing asset in human history and I'd free all of my time and energy to do what I want. And it, it just so happened that, uh, the writing I had been doing up until that point was also becoming popular. And I was in, being invited on podcasts to talk about my writing. Those episodes were becoming popular. So the feedback I was getting from people was just, we want to hear more. We want to read more, like more. And although I still, I can't say that I enjoy writing. It's very painful. It's an extremely painful process. I don't know why. It doesn't seem like it really gets easier. Um, it is unbelievably rewarding, kind of like, I guess you could say kind of like working out, you know, working out always hurts, but it's very rewarding. Um, writing is the same. Like w- once you take the time to read, you know, you're reading a lot of different people's ideas. You then take the time to distill all of that through your own filter and then write something, basically an amalgam of everything you've learned And then you take that written piece and you go on podcasts or media appearances and you talk about it. There's something really magical about this read, write, talk, uh, trifecta that, that now when I, when I go to talk about a piece that I've written, I don't even have to think about it. It's like subconsciously embedded in me completely. Like I can talk about it in detail without even having to really think that hard. So there's, there's some real, I just, I felt like I discovered like a magical formula for learning. Um, and that's it. You know, I launched basically launched when I got out of the fund business, I'm like, okay, everyone wants to hear me read, write, talk more about Bitcoin. So I guess I should start a podcast. That seems to be the thing to do these days. Um, I, I, I will mention here, uh, I was positively influenced by Jordan Peterson on that too, that he was making the point that in the age of YouTube and podcast that for the first time in human history, the spoken word now has the reach and permanence of the written word. And that was profound to me. I was like, Oh wow. You know, we can really, we now have the bandwidth cost effective bandwidth to give these big ideas, the room they need to breathe. And so I, I, I guess tuned in to this resurgence of dialogue that's occurring in the digital age and decided to, to become part of it. And when I decided I was going to do a podcast, I started trying to figure out who my first guest would be. And then just serendipitously out of the blue, this is like mid 2020, I get a DM from a guy named Michael Saylor and he says, you know, thanks for your work. We think it's really brilliant. Here's our, our, our news or headline that just, we just announced we're buying Bitcoin. And I think they bought $250 million in Bitcoin initially. And they went on to buy, he's gone on to buy 4 billion plus in Bitcoin in the past three years. And so I was like, oh, wow, that's funny. It's not every day you get a message from a guy that bought a quarter billion dollars in Bitcoin saying, thanks for your work. So I invited Mr. Saylor to be my first guest on the show. Didn't know who he was. I'd never heard him speak. And the rest is history. Like, uh, Michael Saylor is probably the most, one of the most eloquent, intelligent and successful people on the planet. And we ended up recording 17 total episodes together, probably around 25 hours of content. And that really just put the show on the map. The show, we were, we were big, we were big out of the gate. And, um, now we're in, 
you know, where are we at? Episode 300 plus Three, now? 305. 305. And um, it's been great. I get to learn out loud for a living. I get to talk to the smartest people in the world about really big, complicated ideas. Um, I get to travel the world and speak at these conferences. I am privileged to be mobbed with love by Bitcoiners, you know, that that thank me for my written work or the podcast or whatever, and how it benefited themselves, their family or their business, just by virtue of understanding or what, you know, whatever they learned on the show about money or about Bitcoin. And so I, you know, I have a lot of freedom, a lot of fulfillment, and I'm very grateful to be doing what I do. And it's something I intend to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. I mean, I definitely get the impression that you were you were here to do this work, you know. Like, um, I, I definitely think that the, the works that you've done are just like super important. And as you say, they've just completely resonated with the community. And you know, to me, I look at your your kind of works, and it you know it reminds me of some of the kind of I guess the the Austrian um, stuff that was being written about, like what was it, maybe like fifty or sixty years ago, uh, that now you kind of go back and, and read and like. Uh, you know, on, on like MySys or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think that your, your work, you know, obviously the podcast will be included in this, in this as well. Like you say, that's now permanent, but even, even your written works and stuff, I think they will be looked, looked back on like that. So, you know, like congratulations on everything that you've like achieved and also bringing, bringing Michael Saylor into the, into the fray as well. I mean, who would have known, like, I certainly didn't know that, you know, someone like uh, Michael Saylor, you know, like you said, he was a CEO of a company. I hadn't really heard him speak much and then heard him on your podcast in those early episodes. And I was like, wow, this guy is unbelievably intelligent. I mean, he's just mm. thinking on a completely another level, you know, like some of the the ways that he talks about money, like he is incredibly, I don't even know the word for it. He's just that he's incredibly tuned in, you know, on yeah. in, t- in terms of like the way that he looks at theory. So, uh, you know, well done for, for kind of bringing bringing sailor to us as well as it as prepared. well i i don't take credit for that he's he has a lot of influences that got him into bitcoin but i did just get lucky to ask really to ask him the question what is money and then to give him the, my whole pitch was the, what i just said right we have this unlimited bandwidth now it's like we'll just talk as long as we need to talk yeah. To, to cover the ideas. This isn't like a podcast. I'm going to tell me everything in an hour or two hours. Yeah. It's like, literally, we'll just talk for 50 hours if you want, and we'll just go as far as we need. And that guy, <laughs> um, give him room to run. And it's, it's truly impressive to see him run. hundred percent. Yeah. So you were saying before about, um, the creature of Jekyll Island and having, having read that and then giving it to your family and stuff. I'm, I'm wondering, cause you, you know, you seem to kind of have this, um, period after reading that book where you kind of, I guess, become, became a bit disenfranchised, you know, maybe you were thinking there wasn't, weren't any solutions. Were you ever a gold bug at any point? Because, you know, I find that like a lot of people who kind of went through that pre-Bitcoin phase of understanding the nature of money, they went down the, the uh, kind of gold rabbit hole. Was that you or did you, did you never see gold as being an important tool? Well, no, I definitely thought gold was extremely important, but what I did not think was going to be sufficient was the idea of everyone just holding purchasing power in gold. Um, just given that it doesn't, it's not practical to use it for like a day to day medium of exchange. So 
it was pretty obvious to me that that was just not going to work. Um, although I do appreciate gold bugs, right? They're basically the pre Bitcoin Bitcoiners, you know, totally. advocating for sound money and uh, minimizing the state, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Um, I appreciate all that, but I never viewed gold as a, as a practical solution to the monopolization of money. In fact, I think, and I talk about this in some of my work now, it's the technical flaw of gold that led to the centralization of its custody that led to the emergence of banks and central banks, um, which essentially it's hard to move gold across space. It's not efficient, right? There's a big transaction cost associated with moving it around in terms of security, transportation, storage, et cetera. And what, how we resolved that was by implementing gold backed currencies so you put all the gold in one place and issue a paper token on top of it. And then you can trade that paper or the electronic representation of that paper much more easily, right? You, you radically lowered transaction costs. And that system works in a way um, if you could trust human beings to not over issue the paper relative to the gold, which in fact we have done everywhere and always uh, even, yeah. you know, and it doesn't matter if the banks are honest or the, it's the most honest banker in the world or the most honest financial institution. It really doesn't matter because ultimately government will use that as a honeypot. They'll see all that wealth sitting in one place. And when they're desperate, they, you know, government is the monopoly on violence. They'll roll in the power necessary to commandeer that wealth and they'll either confiscate it or they'll force the banks to give them cheap loans. And so it's inevitably when you concentrate that much money in one place. And if money is power, we really shouldn't be surprised that as Lord Acton said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. You put that much power in one place. It's inevitable that it draws this corruptive behavior out of human beings. So I just don't think gold I do not think gold is a practical solution to the problems we have. I actually think it's the cause of the central banking paradigm that we're living in today. Yeah, yeah, well said. I've kind of made this point a, a couple of times on the podcast similarly that, yeah, you know, the, the flaws in if, if gold was going to be the solution to this problem, then we would have had the solution. It would have worked, right? I mean, mm -hmm. even, even before Bitcoin came around, it was already failing. We were already living under a fiat paradigm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it already had its chance. And I kind of feel like with gold, you have to, gold m might be a solution if we didn't have the internet, you know, like if we didn't have the internet, we should probably still be advocating gold. But since yeah. we have the internet, it seems logical that we use the tools provided to us by the internet and, in, you know, in, we have a digital money. We have a way of having non-physical money, you know, and gold bugs will say, oh, well, it's, it's not physical. So, you know, what's the value in it? And it's like, the, the that's the point. The point is it's non-physical right. and that gives it far more value than something which is physical, which can be seized by use of force. 100%, 100%. At the end of the day, it's money is this socially emergent agreement between people, right? That we're all agreeing this thing that doesn't have any, utility value per se or minimal utility value, we're going to use it for purposes of mediating exchange. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's an informational structure, right? It's, it's just an agreement. So in the same way that, you know, paper agreements are now done online, like you would expect, you, you don't need a tangible form of money 
but you do need it to be, you do need it to require work to produce. Otherwise you get into uh, this weird situation where one group can produce it or counterfeit it and they'll attack those. They'll violently preserve their privilege to counterfeit currency. And that's, just, and that's exactly what a central bank is. So if anything, I mean, Bitcoin's almost like the invention of money. If you consider that all other monies before Bitcoin, part of their market cap is for industrial use or um, consump- consumptive use, not as not demand for the asset as a medium of exchange or money. So, for instance, if you look at gold, it's got between like a 12 and 14 trillion dollar market cap today. Roughly 20 percent of that market cap is demand for gold as an industrial metal. So for use in computers, uh, rockets, you know, dentistry, et cetera, et cetera, all these uses of gold that we actually consume it and use it. The other 80% of gold's market cap is demand derived from demand for gold as a store of value or as a money. So every, even gold, every monetary technology historically has been a, a, partial money, right? It's part money and part industrial use commodity. Bitcoin is pure monetary premium. There is no alternative use for Bitcoin. You can't put it in your teeth or put it in your, I mean, you can put it in your computer, but it's not in the physical components of your computer. It's in the memory of your computer. Um, it's the entire market capitalization of Bitcoin is derived from demand f- for using it as money. And so that's a very unique thing too, is that it's, it really is the first pure money humans have ever had. Yeah, yeah, that is, um, yeah, that's a very good way of distinguishing the two, 100%. And I guess that also includes all previous forms of money as well, right? You know, we that's obviously right. talk about gold because gold's been around whatever it is, 10,000 years or something, I think I, mm-hmm. I heard. But even before that, you know, there was other things that was used as money, but they still had other purposes, right? You know, whether that's, that's right. pearls or, or whatever, even if that's just jewelry. I mean, anything physically that's going to represent value, ultimately people want to use it as jewelry. You know, that's kind of the way that people are. Mm-hmm. You want to show off your wealth, so you take something that has value, you wear it as jewelry. Like if platinum became the new gold tomorrow, people will be wearing platinum earrings, right? Like that's just kind of the way that things go. Like that's with right. Bitcoin, you you can't you can't wear your wealth, you can't, you know, use it to to build stuff. It's not a house that you live in. It is purely just a it's just energy money, you know, it's just a right. a, a non-physical asset. So, I just want to go into kind of a different topic, which is which is actually how we kind of first got got connected because, you know, I made a tweet about um, the nature of government, which you retweeted and, you know, it, it kind of went went quite far and did the rounds. And I just want to, like, discuss some themes around that that tweet. So I'll, I'll just read it out for the audience and then maybe we can discuss that and also kind of how this paradigm that's described in the tweet, how that is affected by Bitcoin. So the tweet was, when the government pays for something, it is either the taxpayers paying for it via threat of force Savers paying for it by having their wealth devalued through inflation of the currency. Your grandkids paying for it via debt. And those are the only available options, right? So mm. there's three options there. And those are, the only, those are the only options. That's how the government pays for something. So what I want to ask you and kind of discuss with you is the way that we know government to exist today, all three of those, um, all three of those things, require some kind of centralization of money, right? Mm -hmm. Taxpayers paying through it via threat of force, well, someone can come and take your wealth physically, right? 
the savers paying for it by having their wealth devalued through the inflation of the currency, well, you can't inflate something like Bitcoin, right? You can only inflate a fiat currency. Or your grandkids paying for it via debt, well, that involves having you know, debt also being seen as money, right? And in our current financial system, you can't actually distinguish debt from money, right? Someone can make up uh, and say, oh, here you go, you, I've loaned you this amount of money, you have to pay it back with interest or whatever. That money never existed in the real economy. They've just invented it. It's actually debt, but it, it circulates around the economy as if it's money, right? So that risk yeah. thing gets spread around. You know, someone goes and says, okay, I'm going to now buy real assets with this money that I've been loaned, which isn't real money. And in the end, you have this kind of um, crisis within the system or this um, kind of vulnerability within the system, which is that the debt is circulating as money. So none of those things really can exist under a Bitcoin standard. So I, I, I like to to think about this question, which is what happens to government under a Bitcoin standard? What happens when government can't create debt or inflate the currency in order to pay for their activities? Like, where do you see government going under this new paradigm? Well, this is the multi-hundred trillion dollar question right here. And it's also a sticking point for many people that are intellectually traveling into the Bitcoin rabbit hole. A lot of people, initially, they'll just dismiss Bitcoin, right? Oh, it's bullshit. You do a little more homework, and you're like, oh, wow, actually, it is better than every other form of money we've ever had. And the next real sticking point that catches a lot of people is, well, then government will simply never allow it, right? They're never going to let go of that power. It is the most important tool in the world. So why would the most powerful institution in the world relinquish control or monopoly control specifically over that tool. And um, yeah, the, the, to speak to the, the tweet, you know, there's a great point there that I see people say this sometimes, right? Like, Oh, the government gave me this money or gave me whatever the thing is, right? If it was COVID and you got a check, Oh, the government sent me a check. How nice of them right? Oh, they're looking out for me. They sent me some money. But if you really decompose what's happening, it's not actually possible. And maybe you can help me stay on this. The next thing I want to talk about is the difference between the state and government. I often use them interchangeably, but there actually is a difference. So I'm going to try to keep calling this the state because I don't think, I actually think humans need government, but we don't need the state. And I'll get into that in a minute. Sure. The state cannot give anyone anything because as Nietzsche said, everything the state has is stolen. Everything it says is a lie. It's not theirs to give, frankly. The state cannot own anything, does not own anything. It's only taking from some and giving to others. So when you get your COVID check, that is coming from the debased purchasing power of all savers in dollars worldwide that the central bank basically counterfeited new units of that currency to debase the purchasing power of dollar savers to send you a check. Now you might think, well, maybe the state needs to be able to do that in times of crisis and whatnot. Um, It's an argument that I don't think holds any water whatsoever. I think human beings best solve problems in a distributed free market fashion and that prices tell us what's scarce. And so if the price goes up, you've created an incentive for producers to come in and produce more of the thing and sell it and resolve the shortage. And if prices go 
down, then you're, you know, you're incentivizing producers to back off and the flip side for the consumers, right? As prices go up, consumers consume less and as prices go down, consumers consume more. So I, I don't think you can actually justify the theft of inflation or taxation, even as a means of resolving these, you know, quote unquote acts of God or force majeure like COVID or any other, you know, natural disaster, et cetera. Um, now, okay. Before I talk about what happens to government and the state post Bitcoin, but this is the, like the most important question. I want to describe the difference between the two. Okay. Now government, um, really, you know, related to the word governance, uh, you, you know, you have a governor, most cars have a governor on them, right? It's something that inhibits them from going to beyond a certain speed. Um, so the idea of throttling, uh, an engine, right. To make sure that it's, it's not, it's not dangerous, right. For, for others. Uh, this is, I think this is a good thing, actually. You, you know, people need to be constrained, but they need to be whatever constraints that they are adopting for themselves. They need to be mutually consensually adopted. This is not imposed. This is not like, you know, follow this law or I will hurt you. It's human beings coming together in whatever type of group, right? These can be business groups. These can be regional groups. These can be, uh, you know, religious. It doesn't really matter. And you're saying that th these are the rules I want to abide by. And I'm willing to sacrifice, you know, what these other sacrifice, the things that are not allowed within the boundaries of these rules, such that I can participate in this group for my own benefit. And now when everyone does that, you get collective benefit, right? You get, you get synergy is a common term used, or you get positive sum games to use a game theoretic term in economics. They call it the division of labor, right? You, you increase productivity by dividing the labor process among more and more people. That's only, you can only do that when it's a consensually, when the game is consensual, the game cannot be forced upon people. Otherwise uh, it does not offer this same one plus one equals three benefit. So government in terms of being a nexus of these consensually adopted rules, agreements, uh, even governing bodies, right? You see this with some, some industries come together and they have self-regulatory bodies, right? Like here, we're going to agree to act this way. Like, that's great. That's all consensual. There's no one's, no one's pointing a gun at anyone, telling anyone to do anything. It's just everyone acting in their own self-interest. And the emergent outcome of that is, are these institutions and practices that are actually good for the collective interest, right? It's a net benefit to everybody. Another simple thing. Okay. Think about this. When you drive in the United States, you drive on the right-hand side of the road, right? This is just an agreement. This is a consensually adopted agreement that people just say, okay, we're going to drive on the right-hand side of the road. If everyone agrees to do that, then everyone benefits, right? We flow, traffic flows more easily, more simply. 
Now, if you wanted to defect from that rule, well, maybe you should be able to defect from that rule, but you need to go somewhere else where they all, all the defectors decided, we're going to go to the left-hand side of the road instead. I, maybe Australia, England, I'm not sure. There's other places in the world where people drive on the left-hand side of the road. So there's, you don't need force, right? You don't need coercion to, to instill something like that. You just need people to have free choice. And when people have free choice, they develop these, I, these, these agreements, let's say, that benefit the whole. Now, so that's government, right? Government really should be this consensual nexus of agreements that the scope of which is to preserve life, liberty, and property such that the market process can proceed uninhibited. Because that's really all any of us want is for the market process, which is free individuals freely exchanging and working with one another under conditions of private property, which means that you keep what you earn, right? It's, it's justice. It's the principle of justice codified into a social contract that what I make, uh, what I, you know, bring labor, materials, capital, expertise, time to create. When I create the thing, I build the table or whatever it may be. I own the table. I'm free to trade it. I'm free to use it. I'm free to destroy it if I want, as is everyone else in the world. Um, so that is government, right? It, it needs to preserve life, liberty, and property such that we can all engage in this market process that increases economic output per unit of input. So we get more goods and services per human hour uh, spent. And that's a net benefit for everyone, right? No one can deny that. Now, the state is something quite different. The state is something that derives all of its revenues from non-consensual exchange. This is taxation. This is inflation when you have a central bank. And this is also legislation by fiat. Now, you've got to be specific here because, you know, in the United States, we have the English common law tradition, which is there have been a lot of disputes between people over very long periods of time. We have observed how those disputes have been resolved. And we've codified that into law over time. So it's like it's a it's a legal discovery process of actually seeing how human beings have dealt with situations uh, of conflict and resolved them over time. And when, when two similar situations emerge, you know, the law sort of like figures out, well, this is how we solved it last time. So maybe we'll solve it this way this time. It might be slightly different. And then next time it might be slightly different. But in the long run, you get this like through line that becomes the law. It's like this this legally emergent discovered resolution process. That's great, right? That's all free market. That's all consensual. There's no force or anything. That's just an emergent phenomena. Legislation by fiat, on the other hand, is when one guy or girl, right, a bureaucrat or politician just signs a piece of paper saying, here's a new law. And if you don't follow this law, we will hurt you or we will steal from you or we will penalize you or we'll put you in jail. Now that presupposes coercion, right? There's coercion built into it. And it also adds a lot of arbitrariness into the law. It's not like we have this long precedent of how we've resolved these problems over time. 
to to lean on. It's it's just whoever's in power at that moment can now pass a law that everyone's forced to abide by. So the state is something much more like that. It, it is it is an institution of systemized plunder and coercion. And you know what does Rothbard say? Rothbard says the state is the app, social apparatus of coercion, compulsion, and violence. Mm-hmm. Now. Do we need a social institution of coercion, compulsion, and violence? The only justifiable reason we would need that is to prevent coercion, compulsion, and violence. So it's like we've tried to put all the power in one place and entrust it to, um, you know, the consent of the governed as we do in, in Western democracies, although that doesn't quite work either, in a way that just disincentivizes the use of coercion, compulsion, and violence. But what we've, but the weird sort of counterintuitive result is now we've created the situation where people that can get in, that can be elected into public office or get into positions of power within the state can now use control over that social apparatus to benefit themselves at the expense of others. Whether this is, um, you know, doing insider deals, uh, passing laws that may favor their own investment interest uh, or getting newly printed money first, right? While everyone else gets, gets the cost of inflation imposed upon them. There's all this, there's this insider game that occurs with the state. And I think it all arises from that. Again, leaning on Rothbard here, this fundamental schism. He basically says the existence of the state bifurcates humanity into two classes. You have the taxpayer, who's having the fruits of their labor stolen through taxation and inflation. And you have the tax consumer who is benefiting from that theft, right? These are typically politicians, shareholders of central banks, et cetera. Um, and that is this deep fragmentation in the world that you can't have people on a level playing field when you've inherently bifurcated them into two categories through statism. So the state, yeah, I think the state, here's another way I've thought about this is all of us have an ego, this little fiction that tells me that I'm separate from everyone else, right? That, Oh, I need, it's, it's, uh, it's useful, right? It's useful when a bear, you see a bear in the woods. Well, your ego is the thing that makes you run away. Um, but if I live as if my ego is a primary reality, I'm le- I'm leading a life of self-deception because in in reality we're all connected, right? We're all we live in a world continuum. We all breathe the same air. Um, you know, everything affects everything else. That's the that's the real fundamental interconnected reality that we inhabit. But the ego will tell you otherwise. The ego tells you, you know, you're separate and you you need to take from others and all of this. Um, I think the state is basically the macrocosm of the individual ego that we have this fiction built into our socioeconomic structures that we're somehow separate from everyone else, right? Like, Oh, this is the United States. This is China. This is India. Like these invisible lines are actually holding anything together, like preventing pollution and, um, people like it's, it's just imaginary play, but it's, it's fictitious. It's not 
reality. And so I think we're, we're living from this place of ego. And, um, I think the state exists to the degree that theft is profitable effectively. Um, and on this topic, you could read a book like the sovereign individual, which goes through the mega political changes that have occurred throughout history and how, you know, certain inventions and certain microbiological events and different topology or topographies rather have changed how people organize themselves. Um, and so what happens to the state post Bitcoin? Well, one of a, a real useful way to maybe summarize what Bitcoin is, is that it is simply the most expensive form of private property to violate known to man. Yeah. If you hold this thing properly, you know, specifically in like a multi-key or multi-sig custody situation, you can't even be coerced out of your Bitcoin. And so the question you ask is a really big one. I would say I can't, this is what we spend hundreds of hours talking about on the show. Like what happens next? What is, what does human social self-organization look like in a world running on a world where Bitcoin exists? Um, difficult to say. We, we don't really have any historical parallel to this. We do have some examples and one that I think is useful is when you looked at what happened between U.S. capitalism versus Soviet communism in the 20th century. And what you effectively had was one model of statism, which was U.S. capitalism, that was that more closely adhered to the principles of protecting individual life, liberty, and property, specifically property, right? It gave people stronger property rights in the United States than you had in Soviet Russia, where really there was an attempt made to abolish private property with, with Marxist communism. So what happened in the, in the struggle, the ideological and geopolitical struggle between these two entities? Well, the Soviet Union went bankrupt. It collapsed, right? It was economically inferior to us and i use capitalism in quotation marks because it's not actually capitalism if you have a central bank you're not capitalistic you're at least part socialistic but nonetheless the prop individual property rights were stronger in the us this meant more wealth was produced this meant that the united states economically outcompeted soviet russia and what happened when soviet russia collapsed is that it fragmented back into like 30 of these previously conquered territories so i think in a world running on Bitcoin, you'll see something similar, right? You see the state will continue to escalate its predations. It will keep increasing taxation and inflation on people because surprise, surprise, the state is a business. And as any other business in the world, it is growth oriented and it is driven by its bottom line. So if the, if the institution that derives all of its revenues from theft wants to grow, what do you expect to happen? You expect to see more theft, right? More corruption. And that is creating stronger and stronger incentives as the state becomes more and more predatory and oppressive. It's creating stronger incentives for people to move their purchasing power into anything that the state cannot touch. 
to protect themselves right? as a purely a means of survival. This isn't like an ideological, like, Oh, I, you know, I don't believe in the dollar anymore. I guess I'll use Bitcoin. This is like, no, the state isn't debasing me. I've been saving in dollars and the state's debasing me, or I've, I decided to move it into real estate. And well, they started increasing property taxes because again, they're a growth oriented business. They need to increase uh, their top line and bottom line. And so over time you get this, big push this this uh or just the the incentives that hold at the individual level push people out of fiat currencies into bitcoin or physical gold these other assets that are harder for the state to tax and trace and that de so you've got people selling dollars and moving into these hard assets as you sell dollars you're actually you're lowering the purchasing power of dollars you're increasing the amount of dollars that states would need to print to remain solvent to serve past debts, which were already up to our eyeballs in debt, as you alluded to earlier. And so the, what's the net outcome if you play that all the way out? It's like, well, everyone that's being preyed upon, which is everyone that's being taxed, has this incentive to move at least their liquid purchasing power into something like Bitcoin or physical gold. That means that's purchasing power that left the fiat system. So eventually fiat currencies would hyperinflate as they always have and always do. And then the state would be left trying to tax these people that are holding these, you know, un, uninflatable or uncounterfeitable assets like gold and Bitcoin. And specifically with Bitcoin, something that's hyperportable and, and highly concealable. And so the state's just not, it's not going to be able to extract as much wealth from those people as it's accustomed to. Now, if inflation, if the currencies have collapsed and they've lost their revenue source of inflation, taxation has become more expensive. Well, the revenue line, like the top line of states is going to decline rapidly as Bitcoin emerges. So what does that mean? I mean, that means we're getting into this kind of bankruptcy situation that we saw with the Soviet Union, where we would expect nation states to fragment and fail. And governance, governance should become a more localized affair once again, right? It's, this, is be, this would be the death knell mostly of centralized statism, centralized states. So, you know, I, th I think, and, and again, this is who knows what all that looks like. The transition is potentially very chaotic, but I think the, the destination is a world in which government is a local affair. You know, how... How much influence do people in Washington, D.C. currently have in our lives? You know, I'm sitting here in Nashville, Tennessee. These people are thousands of miles away. Like, why do they have so much say so in my life? It doesn't make any sense. They don't, they're not here. Uh, to them, I'm just a row on a spreadsheet, right? They're just trying to increase tax revenue. Um, whereas in a, you know, most business environments, you, it's a local thing, right? It's okay to, to deal internationally, but as far as the value that a centralized government can provide to the individual is very unclear in my estimation. Like they, they, they say they're providing this, you know, national security and all of this, but the national security is from other states. So it's like statism itself is the institution that needs to fail. And, um, and again, if the state's a macrocosm of the individual ego, I think we probably understand this if we look 
in our own individual psychological makeups, like the more attached you are to that, that fiction of your ego, the worse your life is and the worse the lives of those around you is, right? The more you can humble yourself, the more you can minimize or at least hold your ego in check. Understand that it's this a necessary, but it's a necessary fiction, but it's not you, right? Like don't hold it as if it were your own personal identity that you become more connected to other people, more concerned for other people and life becomes better for you and for those around you. So I think the same holds true in the, in the, the fractal macrocosm of that, which is the state. The, the more we can minimize the state, the more we can maximize human connection, human freedom, and human flourishing. Yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, you broke that down really, really well. Uh, I mean, yeah, I completely agree. I think that this is, as you say, really well articulated in um, the, the sovereign individual, I think you mentioned, right? Um, yeah, like the way that, that break, breaks it down it is so true. And, and as you said, like the more that money right now is trickling into hard assets, the less the less people there are to inflate. So they're going to have to inflate twice as hard, right? Like the mm-hmm. more money that drains out of that fiat system, they've then got to inflate that even more because right. you're devaluing the currency itself. As it loses its value, you have to print more of it and it's just a vicious cycle. Yeah, which creates more pressure for people to exit. So it's, a, it's an inescapable vicious cycle. Exactly. And, and I think that we're, we're, we're already started on that now. I think that we're kind of, we're already on that train and it's starting to kind of accelerate because once that process is in action, there's just no way that I can see to reverse it. And as you say, like we've seen it many times throughout history. So what's going to happen, obviously, you, you know, in terms of um, states kind of suffering and, and collapsing and then having like more localized government, these are all like great things. But I worry about the intermediate period before people have fully um, adapted to that, that there's going to be serious problems in the world, right? Like when, when fiat money fails... It, it, it kind of scares me more than anything, like the, the fact that money can fail, but people aren't ready with the alternatives yet, that people haven't prepared. You know, I know in some places of, of the world, they're more prepared than others where they have more kind of um, self-sovereignty. They have, more, you know, they they grow their own food, you know, they they run their own business. They're very community orientated. You know, I've traveled to some places in the world where they don't seem to even know the value of money there. It's like they have their community and they're they're kind mm-hmm. of like self-sustaining and money, it wouldn't really matter if money collapsed to them. But for most of the world, for the vast majority, it's going to be a, a, a massive deal when fiat fi- fails. So like, how do you think that's going to look, that process of, of uh, kind of inevitable fiat failure? I guess it's heavily dependent on the rapidity with which it happens. Um, and, you know, when you look at how fiat currencies fail historically, it's very... Very much like what Ernest Hemingway said about bankruptcy. When someone asked him, how do you, how does one go bankrupt? And his response was gradually and then suddenly. And that's really what fiat currency hyperinflation looks like, right? It's typically like long period of it working okay. Inflation's at two, three, four, five percent. Then it ticks up a little bit, seven, eight, nine, ten, twenty, you know, even there's countries now like in Venezuela and Argentina, they've had sustained multi-year bouts of 20% plus inflation. So you can sustain these like weird high amounts of inflation even, but eventually there comes a point, there comes a psychological tipping point where people, I guess, I guess a certain preponderance of people realize that the printing is never going to stop. Like you can't save in the thing because they're just going to keep printing it. 
And when you hit that tipping point, people start to, the majority of people start to sell those dollars for any, to get out of it immediately, right? Like as soon as they get paid, they'll sell it and buy anything that can't be printed. And now when that happens, you're talking about, that's when it just goes parabolic. It just goes, you know, you hit this tipping point where no one wants to save in the currency at all. So it's, it's value plummets rapidly, uh, against, against hard assets. And, um, so it's hard to say what it will look like. I guess optimistically, you would say that many of these smaller national currencies across the world would fail. Uh, you know, they do the gradually, then suddenly curve. Typically these countries that where their local currency fails, people will seek to get U.S. dollars or a similarly strong currency, depending on where it is. Yeah. So you would expect some of these smaller national currencies to fail and dollarize as a result. But I would say at least a small portion of those will also Bitcoinize, right? Because th- this idea is getting out, right? It's not, not only is the idea getting out, but it's also observing this over and over. It's like, well, if that country's currency fell and that country's currency failed, maybe my country's currency can fail. Yeah. And eventually you're kind of looking at all of them like, oh, well, maybe even the U.S. dollar could fail. So maybe I should have at least a percentage of this in Bitcoin. And every time they fail, right, you've now increased, um, you, you've decreased the number of fiat currencies outstanding and you've, you've further concentrated that purchasing power into less and less currencies, which is giving those particular central banks more and more inducement and incentive to print more. Um, and so then those people, then they're getting taxed in the new currency they're in, whether it's dollars or whatever it, whatever it may be. And so as they're feeling that pain, they may be increasing their allocation into Bitcoin as a means of protecting themselves. And then eventually, right, we get narrowed down to one. I, I do think the U.S. dollar will be the last fiat currency standing. Maybe maybe you have an Eastern currency and a Western currency, right? Chinese yuan and, and U.S. dollar or something like that. But ultimately, you'll get into the situation where there are one or a few monetary authorities left. They're debasing the currency as they always have been. And you're still creating these incentives for people to defect out of those currencies into Bitcoin. And there again, that those currencies too will reach their own psychological tipping point. And eventually gradually, then suddenly they will hyperinflate as well. And then at that point, people will be scrambling um, for the exits and the, the exits here being physical gold or Bitcoin. So now that could be, I guess, optimistically, that could be somewhat of an orderly process. So you see the smaller currencies fail. They fail into the larger currencies. The larger currencies fail into, you know, maybe just one or a few currencies. And then finally that currency fails into Bitcoin. More pessimistically, this could happen a lot more chaotically, right? You just have, you could have, um, because all of these central banks are debasing in somewhat lockstep worldwide, you could have, coordinated currency failure, right? Where all of the currencies are failing, if not at the same time, at least in close temporal proximity to each other. And that could be much uglier because there just would never be, typically when 
you know, one currency fails and you dollarize, you're kind of back on firm footing for a little while. Like business can go on and yeah. there's, a, there's a stable store value medium of exchange. But again, the more condensed these failures occur, the more chaotic I think things will be. And, I, you know, it's not pretty. It's not pretty when the money fails. Um, you can study the history of hyperinflations. People tend to have much more urge to gamble and scam people. People just become dishonest. People get very desperate, right? In, in Venezuela, they were eating dogs and cats for, for many years. There's physical cash clogging the gutters. Um, crime spikes, social cohesion collapses. It's bad, right? And you know this. You know this. If you just think how you spend one day, especially if you're in a city or an advanced economy, like um, just think to yourself what would happen on that day if the money stopped working. Like, yeah. what the fuck would you do? Right? You can't go to the store. You can't get gas. You can't pay your bills. You can't pay your employees. You can't get paid. Like all trust collapses, right? If we don't have, if we don't have a medium through which to communicate our economic value, then we're going to be reduced. Our scope of trust is going to be reduced to a small handful of people, right? Just your very closest friends and loved ones, if you're lucky. Um, and you're you're fragmented from everyone else. You're dissociated from everyone else, and so. Let's hope that it happens more smoothly, but, you know, to the extent that it doesn't happen or to the extent that it does happen quickly, I think we're in for a, a bit more chaos. And, um, yeah, it, it's, it's painful to think about because you, even if you defend yourself perfectly and you're rich and you've put a bunch of wealth into Bitcoin and physical gold and you're good and you're set, well, the division of labor still collapses, like supply chains collapse. It's hard to get things. It, it's a it's a very bleak world. So this is why Bitcoiners, I think, are so passionate about fixing the money to prevent the, this recurrent episode that human beings have been going through time and time again, ever since we figured out how to debase money. Yeah, and hopefully the adoption of Bitcoin, you know, even though I want it to, to, to happen fast, you know, hopefully like right now you've got people kind of trickling into it and, you know, maybe it needs that. Maybe that's what you need is a, is a kind of gradual movement onto a new monetary system. If everyone tries to move at once, it might just be too, too volatile, but having mm -hmm. like a gradual moving over and maybe the way that the supply issuance works will help that. So it's not like everyone goes into it on day one, people come to it in their own time and, you know, gradually we kind of create this new system, which is operating, you know, almost in parallel with the old one. And then, mm -hmm. People can move over, but yeah, I do think, unfortunately, I think that, you know, fiat is going to collapse before we're ready for it to do so. I think it's already starting to happen. And I think that the next year is going to be like really pivotal. And yeah, I, I just think that I would like for us to be in a better position to weather that storm. Unfortunately, I don't think that we are, but you know, um, that that's how it is. That's how it's going to play out. But at the other end of it, you know, we will have kind of light at the end of the tunnel because I do think that, you know, for all, for, for all of my fears now, I'm super optimistic about a Bitcoin world. And, you know, hopefully mm. it's just something we've got to go through, right? You've got to, you've got to face the shadow before you, before you see the light, That's I guess. Right. So, yeah, I just want to uh, ask you about one more thing. I know that we've not got too much time left, so I'll maybe turn this onto like a bit more of a positive note now that we've talked about <laughs> how like fiat collapse is going to ruin everyone's lives. Um, I just want to talk to you about the, the, the intersection between 
uh, like the freedom movement and the uh, Bitcoin movement. Because from my experience, like I really think that Bitcoin has been given a massive, massive boost since COVID, where you've seen a lot of kind of cross-pollination between freedom-orientated people mm-hmm. uh, and people who have kind of been against all the, the, the mandates and stuff and who have kind of like fought that, fought that battle, essentially, you know, for mm-hmm. freedom and, you know, free speech and all the rest of it. And, and the, the Bitcoiners, like, seem to have kind of come together. You know, I definitely noticed that, like, the Bitcoin community in general was very, like, hyper aware of what was going on with COVID. It was like, oh, yeah. it, p- people just seem to get it. And now there's this, you know, really nice situation of a, a kind of like these communities coming together. I know that you've had, um, on your podcast, you've had Robert Malone, you've had Neil Oliver, Nick Hudson. These are all people who are kind of like, you know, have kind of made their names through, I guess, everything going on with, with COVID and, mm-hmm. and everything like that. Also, I know you were on uh, my friends, Joel and Eurasimus. You were on their, their podcast mm-hmm. recently. And, you know, it's cool to see you on there. It's more of like a, you know, not necessarily an economics podcast or a Bitcoin podcast, but it's, you know, more about like freedom and stuff. And um, yeah, I'm just seeing this coming together of these communities that makes me really optimistic. And I think that as you know, I guess that for us as Bitcoiners, like we kind of opted out of money and we've gone through that process of completely losing all trust for this institution, you know, central banks and, and governments and this kind of thing. And I think that that probably primed us when COVID came along to, to see it for what it was. But then I think it's happening also in the reverse. You've got these other people who they're, they're going through that process of um, seeing what's happened with, with COVID and, you know, all of the mandates and everything. And they fought against that. And for those people, I think they're now beginning to question money. They're now beginning to question the other institutions. They've kind of, they, they've questioned the, the health institutions and the big pharma, et cetera. And now they're saying, hmm, what about money? And it's almost like we're, we're all kind of like coming together under this, under this same umbrella now. And that makes me really, really optimistic to see that happening. And uh-huh. yeah, I just want to know what, you know, because obviously you've, you've kind of been a part of this, having these kind of freedom people who aren't necessarily Bitcoiners on your What Is Money show and kind of uh-huh. orange pilling those guys. So yeah, what do you think about this, um, the coming together of these communities? Yeah, I, I, I before I answer that question, just to maybe make the last answer not quite so dark. I am <laughs> okay. very hopeful that, Bitcoin can facilitate more of a smooth transition. So as currencies are failing, it's always been like you leave one bad thing to go to a less bad thing, right? I leave the Zimbabwean dollar to go to the US dollar. But now we have have a fundamentally different option with Bitcoin is that you can actually leave bad money and go into good money. Sure. And so that, that may offset some of this catastrophe that we would expect from hyperinflation historically and make the transition a bit more smooth. So it's not all doom and gloom. Um, you know, I, I am, I am positively, uh, I look on that positively, I guess the, the, the role Bitcoin could play in that transition. Now the, the, as for the communities coming together, I think it's wonderful. And I, one of the most beautiful things about the digital age to me thus far is that the liquidity of ideas is just so high, right? Like you can, we are wiring our collective mind together in a way that it's never, never been done before, right? As we're proving right now on this podcast, like two people that don't know each other in different locations, doing a video call that will be distributed to a large audience, uh, media, right? Media, the media paradigm has been radically decentralized, as a result of the emergence of the internet and that 
really seems to be useful because if you, you know, the American pragmatist uh, said that, I forget who it was, James Peirce, I think, was one of the American pragmatists, which was a school of philosophical thought, said that truth is found at the end of inquiry. So what we have, I think, in the digital age is many more lines of inquiry running in parallel simultaneously all the time, right? Like it's this whole distributed computing network that is the the global marketplace for ideas has really come online in a big way since the the advent of the internet. And it just seems to be way less tolerant to bullshit. You know, like, although people are fighting back hard, we see a lot of money, a lot of state, it's always state money, going in to fund these false counter narratives like wokeism and all this nonsense. That's really an attempt to ideologically divide people such that they are more easily conquered. And that when you create division amongst people and divisiveness, you're also generating more demand for law and order. So you can pass more authoritarian laws and things like this. Although those games are being played, it seems like there's an equal and it's, pretty effective, right? There's a lot of woke insanity in the world. I don't want to discount that by any means. It's It's been an effective psyop. And the state too has leveraged digital technology in the, the implementation of that psyop. Yeah. But there seems to be at least an equal, if not greater counter force in this movement towards freedom, truth, self-sovereignty, etc. that people are just taking a stand against this bullshit. You know, like, no, you're not going to perform gender reassignment surgery on kids and no, the state's not going to take kids away if we don't call them their preferred pronoun and uh, you know, just all of the other lies, right? The Epstein thing, like a lot of between WikiLeaks, Edward Snowden, um, all of these things that really would tend to be hidden, uh, under an old media paradigm seem to be getting talked about more, even extremely fringe and quote unquote conspiracy theorist topics Mm -hmm. are, you know, permeating closer to the mainstream. And so all like, it seems good, right? There's, there's this old saying that sunlight is the best disinfectant. And so we just haven't had a lot of sunlight in our old media paradigms, which were centrally controlled. Right. And now, the internet just seems to be this genie that's gotten out of the bottle and it's not perfect. It's, you know, again, it's also being used against the freedom movement, uh, the individual freedom movement. But overall, I think the, the essence of the technology itself is so favorable towards individual freedom that it's tilting the landscape that direction. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a really good thing. And I hope that the combination of all these things, you know, people waking up to the reality that the in, social institutions are not there to take care of them. It's not, they don't operate with their best interests in mind. They operate with a profit interest, just like every fucking human organization. Mm-hmm. And if you can manipulate people in a way that's profitable, then, well, that's what you're going to do. And that's what's being done. But just the awareness of that, people level up their awareness and see that, oh, that's the game being played. Well, that allows them to adopt their strategy 
and become more effective at the game. Um, so I hope this whole thing just gets us back to a world, right, between the liquidity of ideas, so you let's say an intolerance for bullshit in the collective, and then Bitcoin, right, where people can now vote with their wallet. I can I can take my energy, my economic energy out of this system that preys upon me and those around me and put it in a system that's perfectly just and truthful and open and transparent. I mean, that, that's a vote that actually counts. This isn't going to a ballot box and replacing dipshit one with dipshit two, right? That, that means almost nothing. You're actually taking energy out of the entire system. This whole paradigm you're devitalizing when you sell fiat currency and buy Bitcoin. So this combination of hyperfluid ideas and the option to actually exit, right? To actually exit in a meaningful way that contributes to the collapse of the existing, existing status paradigm, I think is really powerful. And I'm very optimistic that uh, these movements continue to become more intertwined and hopefully self-reinforcing because that's what it, it's all about. Again, that, that scope of governance, right? It's life, liberty, property. This the central ethic of natural law. Do not steal. If I, if I steal your life, if I take your life, if I murder you, I've taken your future freedom. I've stolen your future freedom. If I incarcerate you, I've stolen your present freedom. And if I steal your assets, then I've stolen the fruits of your past freedom. Yeah. So hopefully the, the net outcome of this entire movement is toward a world that we respect life, liberty, and property of one another. And that's it. Let everything else be self-organizing, but just respect life, liberty, and property. Or to, to sum it up in one axiomatic phrase in natural law is do not steal. When you understand mm -hmm. that to, to kill is to steal someone's life and to, yeah. to take their liberty is to, to steal um, their freedom. Just do not steal. Let's go, let's move to a world that we do not steal from one another and see how fruitful and productive and prosperous we can become. Awesome. This has been, this has been really, really good. Uh, Robert, I really appreciate you coming on and spending the time. I know it's, uh, well, thank you. I know you're a busy, you're a busy guy and it's, you know, it's taken us a while to, to get here because you got a lot of other things going on. So I really appreciate you kind of coming and giving me an hour and a half to talk about these things. Um, just before we, we sign things off, I just want to say to, to my listening audience, for those of you who are skipping the, skipping the intros, you can go donate to me via Bitcoin. You can go donate to me via Lightning. The addresses for those are in the description, so check that. And if you want to get rid of your fiat currency as well, I'll take it off your hands and convert it into Bitcoin. Uh, <laughs> so there's also a link down there for buy me a coffee so you can give me a donation. Uh, so yeah, hugely appreciate any donations that people have got. If you've got value from this episode, please consider donating. Um, yeah, Rob... Uh, again, thanks so much. Uh, this has been awesome. I just want to give you the opportunity, first of all, just to uh, offer my audience where they can find you and stuff, you know, like uh, whatever um, channels uh, you want to promote and your podcast and all the rest of it. And, and then also just any kind of final parting words that you have as well. Yeah, you can find the show at whatismoneypodcast.com. And then we're on we're on YouTube and everywhere you get podcasts. And you could also find me my largest social media platform is Twitter. My handle is at breedlove22. That's B-R-E-E-D-L-O-V-E-2-2. And um, yeah, parting words. Uh, I've recently seen this 
they've been projecting this image on like the European Central Bank building and it just it's the Bitcoin logo and it just says study Bitcoin. Yeah. And I love that. I love you know, it's not buy Bitcoin, it's not like Bitcoin fixes this. It's just it's an invitation, right? Study Bitcoin. And it's a similar invitation I tried to create with the show, which is, you know, what is money? What is money? Like, hey, do you know the answer? Like who who can answer the question? Mm-hmm. And it's been it's been a heck of a journey, man. It, you know, you it's again, if truth is the end of inquiry, you need to take inquiry seriously. You need to ask yourself these questions. Um, and hopefully if you come to see it for what it is, uh, you know, my opinion is that it's fiat currency is an illusion. Once you start to see through that illusion, you'll, you'll be empowered to see through other illusions. So I would encourage people to just study money, study Bitcoin, ask yourself, what is money? Um, and you know, listen to voices far and wide and form your own conclusion. You know, we, we know we all have a good, a good nose for, for bullshit detection and you just need to put it to work, I think. And, uh, hopefully that will help you get past a lot of the bullshit that's being pushed in the world today. Thanks, Robert. Till next time. <laughs>